West Island Police Station, 1984. You were there. Same model. These were taken today. You have to let me see my son. He's in great danger. New mission. He was programmed to destroy the future. You don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now his mission... Get down! ...is to protect it. Mom! Come with me if you want to live. You're really real. His loyalty is to a child. Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now. And his enemy... He's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. ...is the deadliest machine ever built. Can it be destroyed? Unknown. This time, there are two. Terminator 2. You just can't go around killing people. Why? If you thought you had seen it all... Stay down! Go! Now! We gotta stick together! Arnold Schwarzenegger. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This time, he's back. For good. Trust me. Hello and welcome to another James Cameron deep dive episode of the Movie Robcast. Oh, we are well on our journey now. So this is going to be a bumper episode again. And in this episode, you're going to hear us talk about T2, Terminator 2. Oh, can't wait to talk about that one. And True Lies. Not quite as good as T2, but it's, it's an still inter- a nice chat. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that. <laughs> It's an interesting discussion that we had because we are joined by Chris Carr for that and he is, of course, the host and the producer of the Secrets and Spies podcast and, uh, yeah, so there was no one better to get on to talk about a spy film. Anyway, you'll be hearing about that in a little bit. But first of all, heavens, we are going to be talking about T2. Now, if you've been listening to these so far, you'll have seen that we get a special guest or guests to talk about the films And for this one, I was thinking, who should we get to talk about T2? And immediately thought, we don't need a guest for this one. Because my cherished co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace, hello, Rob. Hello. Is enough. (laughs) (laughs) He is enough. I love aliens. Rob loves T2 the way I love aliens. I think it's fair to say. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I love T2 as well. It was a film that the first time I saw it, it was like, I just don't know how they're doing these effects. These, this is not stop motion. This is something else. This is so amazing. But I am looking forward to hearing Rob talk about his love of T2, because I think from very early on in our friendship, I discovered that Rob had memorised the entire voiceover opening to T2. And it's like, all right, so you quite like the film then. <laughs> and he said, yes, I do. So... Yeah, Rob, do you want to do the honours with the IMDb in terms of the synopsis and then tell me why you think T2 is... Yes, right. (laughs) A cyborg identical to the one who failed to kill Sarah Connor 
in the previous film, in parentheses, I'll put that there, must now protect her 10-year-old adolescent son, John, from an even more advanced and powerful cyborg. That's good. Yes. Is John Connor supposed to be 10 years old in this film? I think he's meant to be slightly older than that. Yeah, but... I'd say he's probably supposed to be around 14 or 15. And he's not 10, right? No, he's not 10. Oh, but he rides around on a motorbike. I mean, because Edward Furlong was born in 77, so he would have been, like, 14, 14 when they filmed this. Yeah. Yeah, we think that he's supposed to be about 14. He's not 10 years old. <laughs> I mean, that would be very interesting to watch. It's like, well, that kid who's riding a motorbike is 10 years old and knows how to hack into an ATM and all this kind of stuff. And Yes, easy money. Easy money. But yeah, I mean, is there anything else you want to add to that for the three people out there that have never seen T2? I think for the three people out there who have never seen T2, pause this and go and watch T2. It's amazing that you've committed to watching a James Cameron, sorry, listening to a James Cameron pod when you haven't seen, I'm going to say, his best film. Mm. I think that millions of people would agree with you. Okay, so if you don't think there's anything else that you need to give in terms of a plot, why is it his best film? Looking at The Terminator, which was his first, what he would he would call his first film, like he's, you know, he's very, you know, not counting Piranhas, uh, Piranhas 2, he managed to basically take something that, you know, had been a pretty simple but compelling chase film inspired by that nightmare imagery on a fairly shoestring budget for the time and that kind of made stars, well, Arnie was already pretty much a star, but kind of made stars to, you know, of Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean or made, made them into established names. Yeah. And he basically looked at that and I, I think when that film finished, he had no real plans to make a follow-up. Like, you know, that was going to be its own self-contained story. Like Highlander, if you will. Like, like Highlander, if you will. And that's the thing. I saw this film probably about the same age that I saw Highlander for the first time, mm. which would have been in the, in the late 90s. So I was probably a similar age when I saw this as you possibly were you when you saw Aliens. Yeah, because I saw The Terminator. I think it was 85, 86 then saw, and I saw Highlander, I think, 87, 88, so um, a couple of years later. Aliens was 86. So I must have, I saw The Terminator before I saw Aliens. I think I saw The Terminator in 85. 10 years old, great parenting. <laughs> <laughs> but it was amazing. But yeah, I saw Aliens when I was 11. Yeah, I would probably have been maybe slight, no, maybe probably, probably about, yeah, 9 or 10 when I, when I saw Terminator 2. At least, at least that's my where I've kind of put it in terms of my in terms of my development. Yeah, and I almost certainly saw. It. I think I saw it before I saw, I saw Terminator, because it it works as a standalone narrative, obviously, as it has to do if you're making a massive blockbuster. Well, I think he's hoping that for Avatar. Yeah, 2 I as think well. he's hoping that for Avatar Two. Fourteen <laughs> years, and no one wants it. And we were all quite intrigued by a Terminator sequel. For those of us who can remember it. And that's the thing, because it's like, well, what, what are we going to do with it? Well, um, okay, I guess um, John's been born. I mean, it's enough time passed. Yeah, John's born. He's, he's an adolescent. Yeah, okay, what are we going to do with that? Going to get Arnie back? Yeah, we need to get Arnie back. Well, we're gonna, is it just going to be Arnie going after John and Sarah again? Huh? Because what, actually one of the ideas that he'd had for the original film was the liquid metal Terminator. Mm. And the, the effects and the budget just weren't there to realise it. And then in a stroke of genius, he goes, well, Arnie's kind of established himself as a movie hero. Why don't we have him be the good guy and this new and more advanced Terminator be going after? You know, he has to he has to protect from. And even without knowing that at the time, I was just absolutely blown away because I think this was possibly my first Arnie film. Wow. So you hadn't seen Kindergarten Cop or all the family films you made during the 90s? If I did, they certainly didn't make an impression. Right. 
Yeah, and there's no reason really why they should. Sorry, go on. And it's the first film, I think, where I became aware of special effects. And that sounds like a criti- that could sound like a criticism. That could sound like, you know, I became aware of the artifice. But no, but I think it was a film that I watched and thought, I have no idea how they're doing this. Particularly the um liquid metal explosions when the you know, when the when the T one thousand gets hit by the shotgun and the chest blows out and then it kind of heals itself and he sits up. And it's one of my first films that I remember just thinking, This is cool. Obviously you watched it at home. Yeah, it would have been on VHS, I think. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna ask, did you watch it on VHS or D V D? Because yeah, late nineties I think it was out on D V D, but I almost certainly saw it for the first time on VHS, although I remember having the lovely Steelbook special edition DVD with the the wonderful special features on it. Yeah, and that came out. That was the okay. This is a gold standard for what for, for the form for like DVDs, especially absolutely. And I learned so much from watching the special features on that. For example, you know the scene where they removed the chip from the term, you know, and and set it to uh, set it to learn which obviously is cut from the theatrical release. I mean, you have to watch the directors. You have to watch the extended. Yeah, that's probably worth saying now, that like Aliens and The Abyss, you watch the extended versions. They're the proper versions. The theatrical cuts are good. The theatrical cuts are still five stars, but the extended is the... Just add more to the experience. I, you know, yeah. I remember the impact. I don't remember the circumstances of the viewing, which, um, but obviously in that scene where um, you know they, they set the chip to learn and it was shot with Linda Hamilton and... Um, um, yeah, and sorry, and Linda Hamilton's twin sister, Leslie, as the Leslie, I think, passed away quite recently. Okay. As her, as her mirror, as her mirror image, and obviously, you know, one of the Arnies is a real Arnie, and the other Arnie is a model. It cuts together so well. Yeah. And it's a film that, like, like the original, the characters are all to a degree archetypal, but they're so strongly established. And you know, I was probably yeah a bit younger than John when I first saw it, or you know, ten year old John, who's clearly not ten. And I think in the same way that Aliens pulls it off, it manages to have a kid protagonist who, for the most part, is not annoying. Or in the case of John, when he's being a brat, he's meant to be being a brat. I think the Empire, in their review for the VHS release, I can't remember who wrote it, but referred to, actually praised Edward Furlong's performance and said it's yeah, something like he gives a fantastic performance as a clued-up kid in a Public Enemy t-shirt. And it's like, that kind of sums it up, really. Yeah. Yeah. She's not my mother, Todd. And then they go cruising off on the on the motorcycle with the ginger kid. That's right. And of course, his foster mama, his foster mama, his foster mother is played by Jeanette Goldstein, who is Vasquez from Aliens, and also the Irish mum from Titanic. So it's always nice to see her appear and stuff. And Xander Berkeley, who's Todd, who gets an amazing death. He does. But why is it amazing? One of the things that works really well about the T one thousand is turning what something that looks quite innocuous because unlike Arnie you know he's more like the original concept for the t- for the Terminator in the first film where he's meant to be be a stealth unit essentially and obviously Robert Patrick as an actor is much closer to Lance Henriksen in terms of like you know very very lithe very and yes yeah, there's this scene taking place between her and John and John's in the phone booth and he's called up to just you know Todd and Jeanette are dicks but I gotta warn him and he's just called them up and you know you've got Jeanette on the phone she's making dinner something's wrong she's never this nice and then after a certain point you hear um Todd talking off, you know, and he's like, suddenly shut up that goddamn mutt. And, her, and she just very casually puts her arm out and you hear a chopping noise, but it's very, very normal. She's chopping vegetables. She's making dinner. And it's only after the Terminator has, you know, um, mis- has fed us misinformation engaged from that, that, you know, your foster parents are dead, that you see the scene, you know, the actual rest of the scene. And you realise that the uh, the T-1000 has just made a blade and just got it straight through Todd's neck, through the milk carton, through the back of his throat, and into the uh, the kitchen door. Yeah. It's a, it's a gory, it's a very gory... Mo- 
and as you say, I was probably a bit young in the context of just that gore to be viewing this one. There are some, there are some really quite violent stabbing deaths. There's mm. the security guard who gets it through the eye, with, again with his double. Yeah, which was cut slightly because this was a film I think that was cut for cinema and then was cut a bit further for VHS by the BBFC because that bit with the eye was shorter, like a lot shorter. And I'm guessing you didn't have the moment with the T-1000 kind of watched him wriggle. That's right, yeah. It was the suffering of the character that was shortened. That's a great scene, though, in terms of, for anyone who knows the Terminator, it's got a really great sense of foreboding because Todd is really angry that the dog won't stop barking. And, of course, the dog's barking the Terminator film because there's a Terminator in him. And you realise, oh, his foster mum is the Terminator. And then in the extended edition, she kills the dog. Yes, that's right, yes. Poor Wolfie. That's right. Yeah, just to go on to T-1000, because we've trash-talked Avatar in this quite a bit in, in these episodes, and you're going to hear a bit more of it as well. And Avatar 2, and the sequel that seems to be that interested in even fans of Avatar. But you bet against Cameron at your peril, because Titanic, as you'll hear in the Titanic episode, is one of those that everyone had written that film off. It just sounded like he'd gone mad in Mexico making a Titanic film on dry land. But this one as well, it was like, so it's going to be a sequel to The Terminator. I just remember how we'd all thought, well, that's just going to be rubbish, right? Because, well, when it ended, there was a good end to that film. They beat The Terminator, and now there's going to be another one. So that was the first thing. They didn't release it all at once, which was very, very canny of them, because they released that, so you got used to the idea that there was going to be a sequel to The Terminator. Then they released the information that Arnie was going to be back, but he was going to be a good guy, which then led to that, it has to be said, quite terrible line in the trailer. This time he's back for good. <laughs> and it's like, this is going to be shit. Because, <laughs> of course, he was so scary as Terminator, so perfectly cast as an unstoppable killing machine. How, like, how are they going to make this guy cuddly? Like, you know. And that's the thing, is that it was like, and it just seems to be one of those things that in the early 90s, there was the emergence of the new man and the new man movement. Yeah, ultimately, it was a good thing because it was like, well, men should be more in touch with their feelings and shouldn't try and be alphas and shouldn't be dicks, basically. And there was this whole thing about, like, you know, it's okay not to try to be a caveman and to be the strongest warrior. You can, you know, you can think a bit more and you can show your feelings and that kind of stuff. So there's, so this whole new man thing. And it seemed like the Terminator had been infected with new manism, which he had. And it, but it worked really well. And that was the thing that it was like, okay, so Arn is back and he's going to be a good guy. Well, that doesn't sound very good. And there's going to be another Terminator in it. And, oh, okay, right. And he can change shape. And, oh. But you bet against Cameron at your peril because the film comes out and everyone goes, oh, my, oh my God, it's yeah. the best film of the year. It's absolutely amazing. It all works really well. It's like he knew what he was doing. And there's a reason why the Terminator is, yeah, it's not his choice to be a good guy. Something's been done to him. He has been programmed to do this. And the T-1000 is just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It just... I don't know how they're doing it. And to your point about the... Yeah, when he gets shot when they're in the mall and they're in that... Corridor. And all the buttons go back and his shirt goes back to exactly how it was. It's like, I just don't know how that happened. How do they get his shirt to go back that well? Why is this? And it was just fucking brilliant. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, you've got, the, you've got the big reveal of the T-1000 when he strides after the um, tanker explosion, after the, the truck explosion, but he, um, you know, in the drainage canal. Yeah. In LA. And you've obviously got the T-1000 striding out in full liquid metal form. Yeah. Which is, again, kind of a callback to the first film where the, the endoskeleton of the T-800 endoskeleton emerges from the, from the fire. And it's, it's a film that is 
so iconic and has so many, you know, and great performances. I mean, Arnie, you know, as the emotionless robot, with a, you know, with a bit more of a kind of wink. To, you know, from the, from the start than he had previously. I think partly because that by this point, Arnie was a superstar, so... And also, Arnie was known as a hero at this mm. point. He was known as a hero and also known for comedy. By this point, the one-liners are definitely bedded in, to the point where it actually become like a bit of a cliche and kind of tiresome, and it's like... I mean, he'd done Total Recall the year before, which was just great. But this, I think, came along at just the right time because this was, like, the best film he'd done since The Terminator. It was the best film of the year, and... It was just when he was on the cusp of becoming a superstar and this just really tipped him over into being a superstar. There's also stories of, of course, it was the first film that had a budget, I think, of 100 million. Arnie, was it part of his payment was in the form of a Learjet. <laughs> so there were all these stories coming out, but not in like a, oh, it's so extravagant, it's such a waste of money. It just seemed to be like really exciting the way that they were making this film. And James Cameron saying, yeah, when asked, well, what's it like to have $100 million and to be accountable for that? he said, to be honest, day to day, I just don't think about it because I've got a job to do. Yeah, I've got to make the film. I've got to make the film. So I don't think about the cost of it. I think about what's going to be the best way to tell this story. On a previous episode, I could have said that Avatar, I didn't think, was as good as his practical films. And said T2, which of course is really famous for having CGI in it. But this is a wonderful example of like... The merging of, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because there aren't a lot of CGI shots in there. And the ones that are in there are absolutely fantastic. But that bit when the T-1000's chasing John and it's in the truck and he's on his bike and John goes down into the storm drain. And I'm thinking, oh, is he going to get down there then? And he just drives through and crashes it down there. Straight it's like, off the... In, yeah, in slow motion and it goes to... Yeah, yeah, and it's like, anything can happen in this film. Because, of course, he can't feel pain. So anything can happen. I can't believe that just happened. <laughs> he just drove that truck down there and it was clearly real. This is fantastic. <laughs> And, you know, Anani and Edward Furlong have a really nice chemistry. And, you know, obviously, obviously, you know, this kid realising that this giant murder robot, this giant cyborg is subservient to him and having some fun with that. Put your foot down. Well, one of the best lines in there. Cool. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Linda Hamilton's back is a very different Sarah Connor, a very PTSD. You know, we've, we meet her when she's locked up at Pescadero uh, under the under the charge of uh, Dr. Silberman, uh, or yeah. Bowen, who is, who is also back. Morning, Dr. Silverman. How's the knee? <laughs> fine, just fine, Sarah. She uh, stepped me in the, uh, my kneecap with my pen a few months ago. <laughs> that's great, though. That's, that's a real twist on her character. Like, what do you think about that in terms of making her someone who has had a breakdown since the first film? Well, I think like, you kind of have to, because you look at the character and think, yeah, that, you know, she, Sarah Cotton, who becomes a hero, you know, a warrior in the space of one night. Well, how would that person hold up? Like, because they can't go back to the life they used to have. And, you know, and she wants to protect her son. So she's, that's the route she's going to go down. She's going to train. She's going to, you know, become a, become a soldier, become a trained soldier. But then inevitably that's going to lead to her being a pretty unstable parent figure. And she's going to do something that's going to end up with her getting locked up. Oh, okay. And that, and that, you know, provides an arc and all because obviously to start with, you have to have her separated from John because if her and John are together, it doesn't really work because John has to be vulnerable. Mm. And then you put Sarah in the position of having like the Cassandra complex. Yeah. And it's like, well, she can be in prison. Yeah, but prison, okay, that, well, okay, mental institute. And then we get, then we get, the way the script is constructed is meticulous. Yeah, absolutely. And the great thing about that is that I remember thinking it at the time, thinking this is a proper sequel. This isn't just a, a redo or like a in the same universe. This has believably taken the Sarah Connor character into the future. And actually, I'm thinking about it because it came out, what, eight years after? 
seven years after the first one, so it's actually seven years in the future from when the film was released, if you're thinking that John's about 14. It's like, yeah, she would have gone mad, because she knows that there was a nuclear war coming. And as we, or as um, our guest said, um, as Jesse and Cameron said on the previous episode, the happy ending of the Terminator is that she lives but knows a nuclear war is coming, and that everything that she sees around her is going to be gone. And that is the best thing, I think, about her performance, particularly at the beginning when it's like, she's gone mad. Of course she has, because she knows that all of this is going to go and everyone's going to die. Yeah, everyone not wearing one million sunblocks is going to have a real bad day, get it? Yeah. And when she's talking about it, because you see the... The, the video, the, the recording that Silverman plays back to her when she's being very calm and very measured and trying to get kind of, you know, impatient, trying to get patient privileges. Yeah, I was going to say the bit when, obviously, she has the nightmare about the apocalypse and you see the nuclear blast and you see what that does. But I think the more effective is when she's talking about it and says, when she says, and the children just blow apart like leaves. And such a great performance, that is. And the fact that, you know, they cut in the theatrical release one of my favourite scenes in the film, which is when she's visited by Kyle. Mm. You know, Michael Bean has a cameo in this film and he has one of my favourite lines in the whole film. (laughs) In almost any film. Well, actually, save that. Just for one second, that was the day after I saw Terminator 2. I was in WH Smith and there was the making of Terminator 2 book. And it's like, oh, because that film couldn't be more perfect. And I was looking through it and there was a still of the Kyle Reese scene with her in the cell. It was like, what? <laughs> Where was this? <laughs> Where was that? <laughs> it's like, oh no, there was a scene when he was cut out of it. Oh. And then off the back of that, it became this big thing about well, are we ever going to see this version? And then, of course, it did get released and it turned out to be the definitive version. But anyway, sorry, go on. Well, first, you know, he's, he's got the callback, on your feet, soldier, that he says to her, which is what she says to him in the first film when he's yeah. been wounded and the Terminator's coming after him. But also, uh, there's not a lot of time left in the world, Sarah. It's like, and it's it's a, such a good line. He can do very good lines. It's like on the Abyss episode with Adrian, I talked about the... Sorry, not much time. I misquoted I mis- misquoted it. Yeah, sorry. But when Mary Elizabeth Matrantonio as Lindsay says, um, what is it, Coffee, who is played by Michael Bean, he looks and sees only fear and danger, but you have to look with better eyes than that. Yeah, James Cameron just does, he can do very good lines. Like, I want you to draw me like your French girls. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to terminate me. You say that in every single one of these, Rob. Because it's such a great I want you to terminate me like one of your, like one of your French girls. <laughs> such a stupid line, but it works so well. We haven't really even talked about Robert Patrick, who's like... We haven't, but is there anything else to say about Linda Hamilton? Because I think that she is the emotional arc of the film. Yeah, well, she learns to... It's about Terminator. It's not just about the Terminator learning to be human, it's about her relearning to be human. Because there's that really, really good moment in it when she's gone to Miles Dyson's house, and Miles Dyson, of course, played by Joe, Joe Morton. Morton. He is the guy who has unwittingly created the Terminator because he gets the tech that was recovered from the end of the first film, and it gives us ideas, things we would never have thought, and then just realise what he's saying when it's like, I have created the end of the world. There's a bit when she open fires on his house and then throws away the machine gun, I think, because she's out of ammo and gets a gun and walks, and walks through the trees, but doesn't move, and it's like, she's walking like the Terminator. This is really clever. The, yeah, the way that it kind of equated her with what she hates and fears the most just shows what a great film it is, but yeah. Yeah, and she does actually shoot him, like, you know, none fakely, but she does. She does, that's right, yeah. Shoots him in the back. Yeah, but her art. So what is it about that that you like? Well, because it's such a complete, you know, because essentially the first film, if you look at it, is a way like about somebody becoming a warrior. 
It's like, well, okay, what if you take that to the logical extreme, somebody who's completely emotionally shut off, and actually at some point she's going to have to, in the context of this film, given it's a block, is going to have to learn reconnect with her son. So that means about her relearning to be human. And I think it's so clever the way that the film has a definite goal that's set up in, in the whole premise of the franchise is that they're going to stop Judgment Day, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Yeah. And because of that, you need a figure. You need somebody you can go, well, okay, this is like, I guess, maybe secondary antagonist. You know, this is like going to be the mercenary businessman who doesn't, you know, who, who doesn't care about the ramifications of the technology. Oh, no, he's, he's a nerd. A really well-meaning, nice guy who is just completely oblivious to the fact that what he's doing is going to destroy the world. And Joe Morton, you know, apart from just being wonderfully charming, he's got one of the best death scenes in all of cinema. Yes, it is a good one, yeah. He's just been shot, he's dying, and uh, the, the SWAT team come in and he's got the, the piece of the uh, blown up microchip yeah. and, he's holding his, and he's holding it over the detonator. And he's got that ragged breathing. I don't know how much longer I can hold this. And then, you know, Dean Norris. Yeah. Breaking Bad, Dean Norris. <laughs> and um, it's a film that has is just so well executed on a moment-by-moment basis. And the fact that, you know, it's created this character that, as with Highlander, I've may have, I've probably watched this a few times when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, but the wonder, the, the, you know, of having your own DVD or VHS and, oh my God, I get to watch this whenever I want. That was the same for me as well. That was the, it was like, I've got T2. And actually, I, I first got it on a copy from a Laserdisc that a friend did for me because it was in widescreen. Ah, as it. Cameron intended. Yes. Well, yeah, that's right. Because it was in widescreen. Um, although it was shot in Super 35. But anyway, but the widescreen framing was better. I have since bought it three times since for myself because you got to upgrade, right? Although I was very, very annoyed. If you're thinking about buying the 4K, the theatrical cut is in 4K, but the director's cut or the, yeah, the special edition, the definitive cut is only in Blu-ray. And I was a bit disappointed when I got it home and realised that was the case. But fine. <laughs> Go back to Sarah Connor. There's, what I like about it is that even when she decides not to kill Dyson, because, of course, John and the Terminator... She's still pissed him. off. <laughs> and she's still cruel as well, because she... Even in the voiceover, she's cruel. And it's like, you're kind of thinking, well, this is after the events of the film, but she says, it's not every day that you find out that you're responsible for the extinction of all humankind. I think you're... It took pretty um, well. I think I'm going to throw up. Men like you built the H-bomb. Men like you dreamt it up. That's right. And she has a right go at him and says, like, yeah, you don't know what it's like to create a life to feel it growing inside you. And I like the fact that she doesn't just become nice. She, it takes time for her to do that. And it's her son that brings it out of her, ultimately. And that she's still really angry with Dyson because of what he's done. But it's really all told through action in terms of you just realise that the action has become a bit more maternal from her. So when they're in the swap van at the end and she puts all the Kevlar vests on top of John so that he doesn't get hit and that kind of stuff. And then when she won't sacrifice him at the end when the T-1000 has got her and stuff like that. It's like using action, as he always does, as Cameron always does, to tell the story of the character very well. And you're right, there are just so many master strikes in this film, but one of the master strikes is, we're going to stop Judgment Day. So at the end of the Terminator is, there's going to be a nuclear war. Which was very, very... That was a perfect ending for the mid-80s, when it's like, yep, there's going to be a nuclear war. By 91, the Berlin Wall had come down, there was Glasnost, the Cold War was really thawing out, or so it seemed. And the idea of a nuclear war in the West because it, yeah, we found out, has always been the biggest fear in Russia, which is just absolutely terrible. But in the West, the idea of a nuclear war by 1991 really just didn't seem on the cards anymore. So the idea of stopping it vibed much more with the audience. 
and yeah provided a really really great goal for the movie in terms of okay this is kind of the MacGuffin because you know the character is the most important thing but stopping the end of the world is a great MacGuffin to have and that's what they are literally racing towards oh yeah because the first Terminator is a great chase film but it's a chase from they are being pursued in this they are being pursued but they're also heading towards an objective yeah which is to get to Cyberdyne and smash up all the technology so that they can't actually create the supercomputer and then, it is great. <laughs> and then similar to the original film, it ends up in it ends in quite a very primal space where there are forces much larger than the characters. In the original, it was, it was the industrial, the, the factory. And in this, it's a steel mill. Which... It's is, the same setting. Yeah, it's the same setting, essentially. Because I think that's because you have a limited amount number of places that you can take a Terminator to and destroy it. That's right. Because that was a game that you play as a kid, wasn't it? Like, yeah, we could drop it at the bottom of the ocean and then it would take years for it to walk back. And it might even rust. But if you're going to set the film and have an exciting ending, then yes, you would put it, then you would set it in a factory of some kind. Which is, there's a couple of things that the film does very well in terms of um, callbacks to the first one, like Arnie this time says, come with me if you want to live, when they're breaking Sarah out of the mental home. And there are some other things like um, uh, get out when the C-1000 goes into the helicopter which is, again, like another amazing shot because you see the guy reflected in the liquid metal. You see the pilot... As he's coming through the window, yeah. And he's staring at his own face and he can't believe it. Again, it was like, oh, how have you done that? Because <laughs> that clearly isn't there. Because it can't be there, but it looks so real. A lot, then, the, a lot of the groundwork for this was clearly laid by the, um, the the water creature in the abyss. Yeah, that was a proof of concept for this. Because he said, like, yeah, without the abyss, there wouldn't have been a T2. But there are, like, a couple of things that are repeated and you're thinking, well, that could have not sunk the film, but made it seem lazy. And one of them is that the ending is a very, very similar ending to the first film, but it just seems so naturally the place that you'd set it that you don't mind. Also, one of the things when I was... Because I was actually really, really excited to see this film by the time it came out. I was thinking, oh, I wonder what new Terminator theme's going to be. And then, of course, it's like, we're just going to do the same one again, because if it ain't broke, you don't fix it, right? And it's like, oh, that's really clever. Yeah, you just have the Terminator theme again, because... It's kind of like Star Wars. That is the Terminator theme. And yeah, and also like in terms of as a, as a, as a climax, it's also very similar to Aliens. You know, you know, you put your heroine in an industrial space protecting a child with, you know, the, the male lead to at least to some portion of it out of commission. And also, on that note, that's the reason they had to reshoot the ending to Alien 3 because apparently when they shot it, they realised, oh, it's very similar to the end of T2. So it will be interesting to see what that was, but apparently they was very, very similar. But anyway, the less said about Alien 3, the better. And you kind of forget, because there are so many great scenes early on in this film, you kind of forget just how great the ending is when you've got the shootout in the Cyberdyne building that then goes into the chase between the helicopter and the SWAT van that the heroes are in, that then goes into the factory and all that kind of stuff. And it's like... The final act is just wall-to-wall action. Which is a very, very Cameron thing in terms of he will set up a story and pay lots of attention to the mechanics of the story and then for the final third-ish kind of say, right, I know what you paid your money for and we're going to do this now and it's going to be kind of the best example of this. But it really is like easy to overlook just how great the ending is in terms of how many action scenes are you know, one on top of another, but they never become repetitive, never becomes boring and never loses the character. And yeah, just stunts that in the context of another film would be a real highlight. Like, you know, um, when you've got um, Arnie's, Arnie's Terminator riding the big rig 
and you know he machine guns the the T1000 through the window and they've got the T1000 convulsing convulsing and obviously then it goes into the factory and it's sliding and Arnie does that roll off the and you know yes which doesn't look entirely realistic but also looks really cool as well yeah, right? yeah. and it has that sound effect like as it goes by the camera <laughs> it's always one of those I always love that shot there's also a good point there actually uh, actually there's two <laughs> so one is that the shell that he finally uses that kind of explosive grenade thing that he mm. fires out of that gun that ultimately get down <laughs> yes that ultimately defeats or like yeah blows the T-1000 up so much that it can't really put itself back together and then it falls into the steel because um, it basically turns into the thing doesn't it it turns into a full on twisted nightmare amorphous body horror yeah indeed it's really good how that is something that is teased and what seem to be throwaway shots there's a bit when it's in the back of the pickup truck and he kind of grabs it and there's a few things where he almost loses it but you don't really notice that they keep going back to it until at the end you realize oh yeah that's a thing that he yeah when, he, when he's riding the kind of wheel it. when he's riding the wheel up and he fires it and it hits the t1000 in the gun you hear the noise and it looks down and you, and you get the expression of shock on its face and then boom it goes up and that's the thing just in terms of how you have those moments within this and then you know topples into the molten metal and you've got the kind of quite you know looking back and you know my generation was say golem like in terms of you know being mm. absorbed into the molten metal and it kind of writhing and the different faces coming out of it and all the things you've seen mm. and you know and you've got Jeanette again with the blade arm and all these different you know all the forms that's taken over the course of the film which is much like the end of the thing when it erupts out of the basement area and it seems to be all the different things that it's been before including the dogs yeah that's right, and also because James Cameron, as we talked about in the Terminator pod, has always been quite strongly influenced by um, Carpenter. Yes, that's right, yes, because um, the Terminator yeah, was influenced by Halloween. He worked on Escape from New York. I think the can-do attitude of John Carpenter that's coupled with a very old classical Hollywood feel... And a, yeah, I, I guess a very Cameron. old-fashioned, like classic Hollywood feel in approaching genre filmmaking, I think it's mm. also like, you know... Well, that's the thing, because John Carpenter always said that he was born too late. He said that his perfect era would have been 1940s Hollywood when you were just a director under contract and you were told this is going to be your next film, this is going to be your next film and you would just be handed a script and you would go and make the film. So he kind of sees himself as like a you know, Henry Hathaway or someone like that. But yeah, thank God that he made films when he did but it would be fascinating to see what kind of films he would have been making. I mean, he would have made some brilliant noir and westerns but anyway. And also horror films, of course. And, and it's, yeah, and interestingly, of course, the thing is a remake or a re yeah of a of a golden age of hollywood called um oh, what's it called the thing from another the world thing from another world yes the <laughs> just go with the thing it's cleaner it is cleaner yeah in so far as i couldn't remember the thing from another world another interesting thing about this film is that it was produced by carol co carol co were a company that were owned by was it andrew vanya and mario cassa i think their names were they were pretty. I think they did Red Heat with Arnie, and Red Heat is just one of the great action films of the eighties. I love Red Heat so much, <laughs> and they produced T two. Carol Co went under shortly afterwards. One of those things where it's like Orion. Orion had Dances with Wolves and The Silence of the Lambs, and another big film that year, and they still went under. I remember there being a letter to Empire saying, "How can this happen?" And they basically said. A hit doesn't guarantee that you are going to be able to pay off your debts. Um, there's a lot of money. But you've had lots of hits. What? When you had Dance with Wolves, the one of the Oscars, and Science of Lambs, the one of the Oscars, like a couple of years later. How are you doing this? Um, like a year later. But anyway, 
Yeah, so Carol Co., which has a really cool logo, doesn't it? When that kind of... The C. Yeah. (laughs) So they went under. Clearly, one of the things that they owned when they were selling off their assets was the B-roll footage of the Cyberdyne building blowing up because that appeared in a load of other films. Years and years ago, I worked for Sky Movies and there was a channel there called Movie Max and that was kind of the yeah more male-oriented action channel. And we had loads of Treat William films because <laughs> Treat Williams just did so many straight-to-video films in the 90s that actually we were able to put on a season of films over a weekend called In For A Treat. And a number of them had shots from T2 of the buildings blowing up. And it was like, does that not look like T2 to you? And it's like, that is definitely T2. T2. <laughs> that is Terminator That's 2. That's the Cyberdyne building. Yeah, there. it's like, how is... What? And it was one of those things where they just got the footage and yeah, it's like, yeah, we can use this footage. So we're going to put in this amazing explosion, actually from a couple of different angles as well that you hadn't seen. Because we can license this footage because clearly Carol Co. owned the B-roll and sold it off as, uh, you know, when they were trying to trying to sell off all their assets, get themselves out of bankruptcy or, you know, whatever. If you're watching a straight-to-land film, <laughs> 90s action movie, and it looks a bit like T2 for a minute, but you're not going mad. And I say, I also want to have a, give a quick shout-out to Marley Finn, who was the casting director, who was responsible for finding, you know, who found Edward Furlong, like, by literally, by a pool. Um, and she was also helped uh, Leonardo DiCaprio with getting cast in Titanic. Oh, wow. She cast Russell Crowe in LA Confidential. Wow. Like, yeah, she gave a you know, and, uh, and DiCaprio. She knows that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she sadly, she sadly passed away in two thousand seven. Oh wow! Well, okay. So and so and, 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 and yeah, and she she features a lot on the special features, and just yeah, I wanted to shout out to that. And obviously, T two had a number of sequels. They're still making them. Yes, including T three, which I wasn't a big fan of at the time. I'm more of a defender of now. I think it's, it gets more right than it does wrong, which is not mm. to say, which is not when you're considering it in the pantheon of Terminator and Terminator two. But I always, always liked T3. It was one of those that, because it was pretty much panned when it came out. I saw it when I was in Japan in a cinema that had a really good screen, really good sound system, but fold-out seating. It was like, what? what? Is this like a town hall they've just turned into a cinema? Because that screen's amazing and the sound's really good, but I'm on a fold-out chair. Anyway, and I was pretty much the only person in there when I was watching it. And so why did people not like this film? It's really good. It's funny and the, and the action's good and the story's good and that ending blew me away. Yeah, then there was Terminated Salvation, which was shit. Dower. That's the Sam Worthington That's one. That's the Sam Worthington one. Christian Bale. Right. Yeah, it is. It's, it's but just, not as bad as Terminated Genesis. Terminated Genesis, which I saw at the IMAX... And that film lucked out getting an IMAX release. It's shit, isn't it? I mean, it's terrible. (laughs) It has one good moment in it. That moment when they're in the chopper. So Arnie as the Terminator and uh, what's her name from Game of Thrones? Amelia Clark. Amelia Clark as Sarah Connor, right? Yeah. Are in the chopper and he says... Jai Courtney. Jai Courtney, yes. As John Connor is like, fuck's sake. (laughs) You've got Michael Bean, you're not Jai Courtney. And to your point on the Terminator episode when Arnie went to talk to James Cameron about playing Reese, it's like, what kind of diet are you on in the post-apocalyptic <laughs> world? And you watch this one, it's like, Jai Courtney, is, he's got a $50,000 body. He is gym honed by the best trainers and he's got one of those eight micro meals a day things. So he's completely ripped. Like, yeah, his diet is a nutritionist diet. What? And it just made no fucking sense. And it's rubbish, and the trailer spoiled things, and ugh. Anyway, it has one good moment that kind of captures the old magic. And that's when they're in the chopper, and Arnie says, 
stay here, I'll be back, and then jumps out of the chopper. <laughs> and she goes, what? And then he jumps out, but it's just so fucking brilliant, that bit. I actually watched that again when it was on telly. <laughs> I just sort of watched that bit, and then, oh, it's still good. And Terminator Dark Fate, which is slightly better, but still oh, much very better. good. Oh, I like that one. I watched that again. I liked when we saw it at the cinema, and then I put it on one... Saturday Night. That's a good action film. That holds up as a intelligent enough action film and it doesn't disgrace the Terminator franchise because but, there have been far worse films than that. Of course, none of it which compares to Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Which was really good. Which is really good. Really undervalued by whatever network put it out because it scraped for a couple of seasons. It was on it. Fox. But it was really good though, right? Yeah. Lena Headey, Thomas Decker as John Connor, Summer Glau. Yeah. As, you know, the female guardian. Garrett Dillahunt as the... Garrett Dillahunt. Like, I love Garrett Dillahunt. As the evil Terminator. Summer Glau was really good as the guardian Terminator, yeah. That had that great scene set to The Man Comes Around by Johnny the, the, the Raid on the Motel. Yeah, indeed. Obviously, they didn't have the budget to do a big action scene, so they filmed it quite expressionistically or sort of like quite... Well, most of it's bodies landing in the pool, shot That's them right. in the pool. That's right. It's so well done, that is. That's how you do an action scene if you don't have the budget for a really amazing action scene and don't want it just to look a bit cheap. Okay, so is there anything else amazing about T2 other than all of it? Um, uh, the score. Yes. Brad Fidel returning as composer. I mean... Well, there's one... No, go on. Yeah, no, no, you go on. On the previous episode, we talked about how the score has the driving rhythm of a Terminator... But the melody is, is very mournful and it's very human. In this, there's a piece of music when Arnie gets the minigun <laughs> and goes and scares all the cops away by shooting at them and blowing up all the cars, but doesn't actually kill any of them. Of course, because yeah, it, it, it bears, does bear repeating that Arnie doesn't kill people in this film yes, because of course, John yeah. Connor tells him not to. Because he's a new man. It's like he's a new man Terminator. So yeah, so he doesn't kill anyone. When he shoots the security guard in the boat, right, he, he caps him. <laughs> I had a friend who was really, really humorous about that and said, but that guy's going to be traumatised forever and he's also going to be disabled forever because you're not going to come back from a kneecap wound. It's like, yeah, that's right. That's exactly the way to think about that moment. <laughs> not the, the fact that it's, I mean, come on, it's the entire audience just burst out laughing. It's like, he'll live. <laughs> also, the fact that Arnie knows exactly where to shoot someone to make sure he doesn't die. It's like, because he has detailed files about human anatomy. And the fact that he calculates fatalities with a decimal point. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. So zero. It's either dead or he isn't dead, Arnie. Figure it out. Zero. I suppose if it's like if you're if you have like a decimal point, that means that your odds of surviving are been reduced anyway. But that piece of music, and I will probably play a bit of it, seems to be a way to take the Terminator score and give it some humanity for the Terminator, because it's of course that's the big thing where he goes out with this ultimate deadly weapon but doesn't kill anyone. And it's such an awesome piece of music, but does have a more human melody to it. Just really clever. And like with the first film, seems that if you're on board with a James Cameron film, you bring your A game and everyone just brings their A game again.
And we need to talk about that bit as well. Just that bit when, um, well, from me, sorry, because it's so awesome. When the T-1000 is in the Pescadero Institute, yeah. Yeah. And because they're trying to break out Going through the door. And he goes through the door, yeah. And why is that brilliant? Because you've got him step through the door in his, his liquid metal form and the bars, which in the door's locked. And he, but the gun catches on one of the bars and he has to kind of move his hand around. and then you yeah you've got um the um syringe cap that drops yeah. out of Dr. Silverman's mouth because he's so like because <gasps> he's seen this thing that can't possibly happen and, and he pops up um, his bones in the third film as well when he's at uh, the raid on the cemetery yes and then the Terminator crashes through the wall with the coffin containing what's meant to be Sarah Connor's remains but instead is, is a weapons cache yeah and, and Elbow and uh, Dr. Silverman just takes to the hills he just because isn't there like a scene earlier in T3 when he says yeah and there's things that you see that you just stay with you like you know they stay with you and you just impossible, and you can't... impossible things that's right yeah <laughs> impossible things you're just haunted by it and it's like which is such a nice arc for him across the film from being like a bit of a smug shit in the first film and is utterly haunted by the third one because it's like this can't possibly be explained other than that that guy was telling the truth but that bit yeah when the T-1000 walks through the metal bars won a game because it's like oh how because his nose is pushed in and his face kind of squeezes around the bars and then that gun just catches and and he, and he yeah. loses his composure for a minute as he's yeah, this bit annoyed that he can't get it out it's like this is fucking perfect <laughs> Well, I, I love the part where, um, you know, um, Sarah Connor's running for the lift and it goes into slow-mo and Arnie steps out and she just completely yeah. goes to pieces and she's just screaming, like, trying to scramble away from him. So good. Which obviously sets up the, come with me if you want to live. Yeah. Yeah, that bit when he appears and it's like her nightmare is standing right in front of her. Oh. <laughs> it's such a good moment. And then that bit when in the lift and the T-1000 puts his arms through and they turn into things to, you know, to pry open the lift door. Oh, <laughs> so many great things. Let's just say things from T2. <laughs> oh, and yeah, as you're talking about, going back to the, talking about the score, the, the use of, not the score, but of music of a bad to the bone, where mm. Arnie steps out of the uh, the biker bar wearing the duds with, and, you know, with the sunglasses, you know. Get there, you take the man's wheels, son. <laughs> Yeah, snatches the sunglasses off the guy's face. That's right, yes, yes. Yes, when he snatches the shotgun and then he takes the glasses as well. Down, 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 down. It's interesting that because for a certain age of viewership who love their John Carpenter movies, that song is forever going to be equated with Christine because that's the opening to Christine and that's actually the end to Christine as well. I think that the song plays again at the end. So in terms of, oh, right, so, so they're using the Christine song, but of course that made the song much more famous by being in T2. Off the back of T- Terminator 2, one of the impacts of it was I did have a couple of birthdays at Planet Hollywood. Oh, wow. What was that like? So filled with movie memorabilia, which was awesome. I don't, I don't think the food was particularly good. It was probably quite expensive, but yeah. Mm. That was, uh, I never went Planet Hollywood, but I always wondered what a burger there was like. Probably not great. Yeah. But not paying for the food, you're paying for the, for the surroundings, you're paying to, you know, see one of the Terminator models, like Arnie Jacket, and it's... Yes, and of course this film also made quite a lot of money. <laughs> so I think it made about, was it $565 million? So over five times its production budget, which now actually would be not great for a film, but at that time it was like, that film has made $565 million. And then just smashed it when it got released on video as well. I remember everyone, all of my mates had the video and it's like, but it's not in widescreen. <laughs> also, shout out to a T2 3D battle across time. So have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, Universal Studios. Well, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Universal Studios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, because that was directed by Cameron as well, yeah. wasn't it? So what's it like? 
I mean, yeah, essentially it it opens, you know, because there's a there's a kind of a live action element to it, and it opens in the Miles Bennett uh, Dyson Memorial Auditorium. Oh wow! Okay, and the good. idea is that they continued the you know Cyberdyne's continued developing the technology, and you go and you go into this show, and they're going to kind of display the new the latest weapons tech that they have, and it, you know the Terminators come out, and then Arnie arrives back, and it's literally a guy riding a motorbike on stage with like somebody who looks like they could pass for John Connor, yeah. you know, traveling there, and and you know Sarah's there, and but then they end up having to travel forward. They break all they break the rules of time travel, and they travel forward into the future, into post-apocalyptic future, and they're fighting against HKs, and they have to deal with like I think it's called like they call it the T one million which is this enormous like embodiment of of skynet you know which is made made of made of mimetic polyalloy and is this on a screen in 3d at this it's point? all on a screen in 3d after, after a certain point they, they try and they travel back into the past it goes into the screen on 3d and is it a ride or is it just one of those things where the seats move uh i think it, you know it's just the seats i don't even I can't remember if the seats move i think oh, it's, okay. it's more like it. it's more like like the um like the indiana jones show or one of those they get out any of these oh, sorry it's more like it's more like a stunt show <laughs> right okay oh okay right oh how oh, interesting um, so it's more like Waterworld or something. Yeah, exactly. Of, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. I love that. I love that right. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> non-canon, to be stressed. <laughs> Definitely non-canon. Does it have a thing at the beginning? Does James Cameron appear on a screen saying, this is not, not canon. canon. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a sequel to T2. They've given me so much money. Yeah, they threw so much money at me, guys. I couldn't say no. Because then it means I can do this thing about these blue people that this is an amazing idea. You're going to love it. But the it box is... Office Proved him right. And it's great because, you know, Arnie is in it and Edward Furlong is in it. And I can't remember if, if Linda Hamilton... I think Linda Hamilton records, records some voiceover because she doesn't travel back in time, so you never see her on screen. Um, so it never, never doesn't travel forward, forward in time. time yeah. And I think the T-1000 makes it forward to the future with them. I can't, I can't, quite, I can't quite remember, but it, <laughs> it, was rec- it was like released a few years after Terminator. That's too. right. I remember it coming out and it being... Uh, I think Empire did a thing about it and it was like, oh, that sounds quite cool. Okay, so is there anything else to say about this film or its legacy? T two three D. What more is there to say? Well, did you see that the three D version of this? Oh no, sorry, the um, sorry, the three D ride version. The other uh, ride. The, sorry, oh, the, right, the, sorry, the yes. across time. Yeah, because <laughs> there was a three D version of this. wasn't Yeah, there was. Um, I didn't bother seeing it because I just don't care about three D films. Well, you know, or um, films I love that are then like three D effects. Yeah, yeah I never saw Jaws in three D either. Apparently, that was all right, but I thought, well, okay, fine. Edward Furlong, of course, didn't ultimately hit the skids and had quite a dark period of addiction and alcoholism. That's a real shame. Because he was great in stuff like Little Odessa with Tim Roth and American History X with um, Edward Norton. I mean, he's great in American History X. And that seems to be like a bit of a comeback film for him. I think that was that was 98, that movie. Well, and Nick Starr, who played John Connor in T3, had a tough time of it as well. But that's the thing is that Nick Starr was brought in because Edward Furlong couldn't be trusted to be able to make a film. And then Nick Starr kind of went the way that Edward Furlong did. So it's a real shame. It's like, oh, what is it? But is it the curse of John? Of course, there's also... Christian into- Bale, a, massively, a massive <laughs> blow up on the set of Terminator Salvation that almost like he had to apologise for when he accepted his Oscar for The Fighter, which again, you know, he accepted his Oscar for The Fighter. So he did okay. He was fine. But that, I mean, that was a... What is this, Chris? What are you... you completely freaking out on this Terminator movie? I'm trying to talk to Bryce. And, yeah. <laughs> That's right. You are distracting me. <laughs> Fiddling with it. Because was it the uh, cinematographer was moving lights behind him or something? You, you and me were done professionally. That's right. And then obviously Terminator Genesis, Jay Courtney, who... Again, nothing bad has happened to him. <laughs> but he hasn't broken through perhaps in the way that, you know, he ended up being like, oh, Captain Boomerang. 
he was someone people would like to see. Oh, we'd like to see you in like a comedic role or a supporting role or for five minutes. For five minutes, <laughs> and then uh, sorry, anyway, sorry, he played Carl Reese. He didn't play John Connor. It was it was Jason Clark. Yes, of course, in, with Jason Clark who played. Who, um, but John that's Connor. the last appearance of that character because he turned out to be a, a, a swarm of nanobots or something, and they spoiled it in the trailer, <laughs> and it was awful. Yeah, that John became a Terminator in Terminator Genesis. Of course, Edward Furlong does kind of appear in Dark Fate. Killed off right at the very beginning. <laughs> Which a- you called before we saw the film. I was going to de-age Edward Furlong because he looks so ravaged now. They'll have to de-age him even if he was playing his own age. And he said, I think I'm going to kill him off at the very beginning. And it's like, huh. And then they did. <laughs> because it's like, because <laughs> well, they're setting up another character who clearly has to be the focus of the plot. Yeah, it was one of those things where it was distanced enough from T2 that I didn't really mind that that happened. It's not like Alien 3, where at the very beginning they kill off Hicks and Newt, and it's like, well, then you've fucking lost the audience now. What a stupid idea. And it's interesting that Robert Patrick and Linda Hamilton kind of went on to other things. Like, is Linda Hamilton in Dante's Peak, the volcano film with Pierce Brosnan? And Robert Patrick, of course, was in The X-Files. He was the Duchovny replacement, wasn't he? And and also, just having talked about um, Suicide Squad, um, Robert Patrick is in Peacemaker. No, he plays his dad, doesn't he? Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so they've gone on to do other things. <laughs> but I think that for all of them, including, of course, Arnie, because Arnie only really had one more hit after this, and that was True Lies, which we'll be talking about, which we'll be hearing about in just a sec. But after this, it was like his films didn't work. You had The Last Action Hero, which came after this, that they thought was going to be a massive film, was completely trounced by Jurassic Park because it's not great. Then you had True Lies. Then after that, you were into things like um, Eraser, and Batman and Robin, and... I'd killed the dinosaurs. The Ice Age! (laughs) (laughs) Ice to see! (laughs) (laughs) so shit. He does actually give quite a good... There's a few good scenes, though, when he's lamenting his lost wife, and it's like, oh, Arnie's the best actor in this movie. (laughs) Oh, my God. And what else was there? Collateral Damage, End of Days. I actually quite like End of Days. It's a mad film, but I do quite Uh, like it. The Sixth Day. The Sixth Day, which was not as good as it should have been. It's a really good idea. And then he became the governor, didn't he, of California for a while? Yeah, but it was like... I never saw Maggie. Did you see that one? Yeah, Maggie was quite good. Was it? It wasn't as good as it was made out to be, because everyone was like, oh my God, Arnie's amazing. It's, it's like, it's good, and he's good in it. I don't think it's his best performance. Because <laughs> it's a film that he has a credited acting coach on, isn't it? Um, and I think he asked for the person to be credited it was uh, it's like well that's you've been doing this for well if you counted Hercules in New York for over 30 years <laughs> and why wouldn't you <laughs> why wouldn't you for over 30 years and you have an acting coach for this movie hmm. and then The Expendables 2 he was in that wasn't he and what was that one escape plan which should have been the best film ever it's Wester Stallone Arnie it's Escape from Alcatraz but didn't just didn't work as well as it should have done it has a couple of good lines in it Arnie saying, Ah, you punch like a vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) I think Terminator Dark Fate was the last film he was in. And of course, sorry, he was in that one. And that was a, yes, and actually I do think that was a good film. So yes, he was in that. And he was good in that, I thought. Yeah. As a new man, old man, T-800. Um, (laughs) This stuff should be fucking ludicrous, but he was good in that, I thought. Yeah. Well, look, let's get back to T2. Is there anything else to say about T2 before we wrap up? No, I think I thank you, mate, for giving me the chance to talk about this because, again, it's it's probably my favourite action film. It's a good one to have. No, it's fine. I'm sorry that I talked a bit more than I thought I was going to. No, this is this is an exchange. It's an exchange of <laughs> of love for this fucking brilliant movie that is 32. No, sorry, 31 years old, almost 32 years old, and it hasn't aged. 
the only thing in this film that looks shonky, and it looks shonky at the time, is the back projection when they're in the car driving away from the Pescadero mm. Institute. It looks so fake. And it's like, but even at the time I was like, oh, that was rubbish. Why is that rubbish? I wasn't. <laughs> I like the model work when he's going through the lobby and the SWAT team is shooting at him and it's clearly a dummy. Like, it ticked me out of the film a little bit. I can appreciate it for what it is, but that's like the only other moment I'm like, okay, that's not entirely convincing. Yeah, that is a... It's like an upper torso, isn't yeah. it? It's, like, well, it's the upper half of the, of the Terminator, literally with a puppeteer yeah. kind of going, and uh, as he's being hit by all the bullets. Yes, that's right. That would be CGI nowadays. But like the bit in the first one when he's operating on himself in the mirror... It's good it's, enough. It's good enough, yeah. That's it, yes. Yes, it is good enough. And Dean Norris is in that scene as well. And also, sorry, there's... <laughs> The bit in this film when he says, I'll be back, is really good as well because it's completely baked into the scene because it's when he goes to clear them all out, isn't yeah. it? So they couldn't get rid of all the cops. So He's going through the halon gas. That's right, yeah. And that's really good because she... Yeah, hold this. And he gives right, the yeah. takes his mask off. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so brilliant. But it's really good because she... Sarah Connor reacts to him saying that when he says, stay here, I'll be back. And she nods to so that she's heard him under the mask that she's wearing. Oh, that's how you do your one-liners. You bake it into the scene. <laughs> and you don't just have it a thing that people go, oh, look, he said the thing again. Yeah. Hasta la vista, baby. No one is. I'm talking about that. I know why, I know now why you cry, but it's something I can never do. Oh, God, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> but again, because it's really, really treacly and syrupy at the end, but it's earned sentiment when he goes down with a thumbs up. Oh, it's so beautiful. And of course, hasta la vista, baby, slightly sullied by fucking Boris Johnson saying it when he resigned as Prime Minister. Did he? Yeah. How the fuck did I miss that? Yeah, when he was... It was his last speech in Parliament as Prime Minister and he... But at least tell me that... At least least tell me that we sunk him in molten metal. I wish I could say that. We didn't even impale him when he was having a drink of milk from the fridge. (laughs) (laughs) Then anyway... Boris. (laughs) (laughs) So to end on a downer, but hasta la vista, baby, is just great. Because, of course, he's also said when he shoots the T-1000 and it shatters into all those pieces because it's been frozen. Then he puts itself back together, but glitches in the, the special edition. edition version, yeah. <laughs> Which is brilliant as well. Oh, so much. All right, then. Well, I think look, there's obviously more to talk about, but uh, what a film. But I'm going to give the final line to you. Well, I guess what is there left to say about this film and, you know, in part of the wider discussion of, you know, James Cameron's filmography, what, you know, what is there left to say other than we'll be back... Stay here. I'll be back. Right now, you're going to hear us and Chris Carr talk about True Lies. More Arnie. <gasps> How'd it go at the convention, honey? You were the big hit of the show. It's fantastic. It's a love to do the business. For 15 years, Harry Tasker's been leading a double life. Mr. President, one of our best men is inside. Transmitting now. Right on time. I don't believe I've met you before. Rehnquist. Harry Rehnquist. Listen to the following code word. Helen. H-E-L-E-N. Now, they're about to collide. What's your exit strategy? I'm going to walk right out of the front gate. May I see your invitation, please? Sure. Here's my invitation. Yeah, that worked good. Right out the old front gate. Can you lean back a second? What's the Tasker's office? 
Hi, it's Helen. Is he in? Harry's in a sales meeting, Mrs. Dasker. It's not like he's saving the world or anything. Well, see, this is the problem with terrorists. They're really inconsiderate when it comes to people's schedules. Can you press the button for the top floor, please? Hi, Helen. Harry forgot something back at the office. Whenever I can't sleep, I just ask him to tell me about his day. Six seconds and I'm out. Maybe it's just that you're not in touch with your feminist side. Harry! Uh-oh. Okay! What were you doing here? I wouldn't even leave me if I told you. You know what this is. It's a snow cone maker. Is it a water heater? From James Cameron, director of Aliens and T2. Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a Soviet MERV-6 from an SS-22 and launch vehicle. I married Rambo. Jamie Lee Curtis. Have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. True lies. What can I say? I'm a spy. So, now to talk about True Lies, uh, we have Chris Carr of the Secrets and Spies podcast. Hello, Chris. Hello, thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for joining us. By the way, and this is genuinely true, if you can hear any background crackling in... Wait, sorry, if you can hear any crackling in the background of my recording, it's because there's something in the kitchen that keeps making, like, a crackling noise. I thought it was because <laughs> I'd managed to somehow put the uh, the metal bread bin too close to the uh, microwave. Apparently it's not that, so I may legitimately be being bugged. <laughs> It is not that cat that delayed the train the other day, is it? <laughs> it snuck into your apartment. It could be. At this point, I'm ruling nothing out. The CIA once tried uh, wiring up cats for surveillance, but it didn't work out too well. <laughs> Dogs were more reliable. Why are they not going where we want them to go? Because they're cats, as anybody who's ever dealt with a cat will know. <laughs> Indeed. That, that's a great idea, though. If you want to bug someone's house, then just put something in the cat collar because they're going to sit on that person's lap at some point. <laughs> and it's a risky move, high risk, but if it pays off, it can pay off in dividends. Yeah, true. <laughs> so, shall I read out the synopsis from IMDb? A fearless, globe trotting, terrorist battling secret agent has his life turned upside down when he discovers his wife might be having an affair with a while terrorists smuggle nuclear warheads into the United States. Oh, that spoils quite one of the fun reveals of the film. What, that he's a Yeah. I mean, because yeah, you kind of know that he's not legit fairly quickly, but you don't know that he's a and I thought that's quite a nice moment. Mm. Yeah, indeed. We'll need to think about if we're going to spoil that or if I'm going to bleep it. I might bleep it. <laughs> you're going to redact it? You're going to redact the podcast? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> But as IMDb synopsis go, that's actually pretty thorough. Grammatically mostly correct? I mean, yeah, that's pretty much the high mark. So yes, this is obviously the 1994 James Cameron film. He re-teamed with Arnold Schwarzenegger, so they had worked together on Cameron's previous film three years earlier, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, which you heard Rob talk all about that. This stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Harry... Is it Harry Tasker? Is that his name? Yeah, yes. Tasker, if you want to... Yeah, Tasker or Tasker, yeah. Tasker, I think, yeah. He does tasks, basically. <laughs> Depends whether or not you're northern. <laughs> That's right. Who is a secret agent, uh, but his wife, Helen, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, thinks that he's just the guy who sells computer software. 
So he's having to live a double life. And he has a team, Tom Arnold as Gibb and Grant Heslov as Fazil are his kind of men in the van when he goes out on missions. And yes, Art Malik plays Aziz, the Middle Eastern terrorist who is leading a radical sect who have got their hands on a nuclear weapon and are going to detonate it. I think it was Art Malik's birthday yesterday. Mm. I think he turned 70 yesterday. Ah, happy birthday. So happy belated birthday, Art Malik. Yeah, it's very, very belated by the time this goes out because we're recording it on the 14th of November. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Christmas, Art Malik. (laughs) Yes. And um, so who else is in this one? We have Eliza Dushku from Buffy. So Faith. So she plays Harry and Helen's daughter. Tia Carrera is Juno. And I'm not entirely sure her name is said that much because I would not have been able to say her name and I only watched it on Saturday. She's kind of this person who um, is helping... Aziz with his nefarious scheme. Bill Paxton plays a bit of a slime ball who is the other man from the synopsis. <laughs> we won't say what he does because I've already bleeped that bit. <sighs> and uh, Charlton Heston appears for what was clearly a morning's work mm. as Harry's boss. That's a overview. This was coming off the back of The Last Action Hero, which was released the year before. This was a role, apparently, that Schwarzenegger had agreed to before Last Action Hero. But it's still quite fortuitous that it was his next film because Last Action Hero was his first really big flop. Mm. And he needed a hit. Mm. And True Lies provided him with the hit. Can I just say off the bat, I think I preferred Last Action Hero, to be honest with you. But (laughs) overall... There's a case to be made. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a very, very good lead-in because I was going to (laughs) say... If you don't want to listen to Rob and I talk about this, we have someone who runs a spy podcast where he talks to people from the intelligence agencies about espionage and the spy networks. So really, really looking forward to hearing what you think of True Lies, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's not realistic other than there's two bits that are realistic. Um, and in fact, in my notes, I said there was one, but there's actually two. So first of all, yeah, Harry has a kind of cover identity so he, he has this sort of very bland sounding job as an IT technician uh, and his wife doesn't know what he does in reality if you were like a, an officer for the CIA your wife would know what you do just to avoid awkward things but if you were dating someone um, and they hadn't approved that relationship then yes you probably would need to kind of lie about what it is that you do you wouldn't you wouldn't lie to your partner about your name and stuff like that but your profession you would and the other realistic aspect, which is actually I like about the film, is that Harry doesn't work alone. He is supported by a team on his mission. And in that regard, that is, you know, that's pretty good. Uh, the team probably would be larger in real life, but the team are a very important part of espionage. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I have to ask, why did you prefer The Last Action Hero to this one? It's interesting. I think The Last Action Hero, just think about the film as a whole, I think The Last Action Hero had a slightly better point to it (laughs) because I don't think there is a point to True Lies. It's just popcorn entertainment. Whilst I think with Last Action Hero, I think one of the points, I was just reflecting on this earlier, I think one of the interesting points is when Charles Dance's character gets into the kind of the quote-unquote real world and realises bad people can get away with things because the real world isn't like the movies. And I kind of like that um, as a kind of commentary. Rob and I were literally talking about this scene yesterday. Uh, what's his name? Um, the boss of the Charles Dance character called Mr. Something or other. Mm. Benedict. Yeah, Charles, Charles Dance's character Benedict has just shot someone and he's basically calling out going like, hello, I've just shot someone. Is nobody going to come and arrest me? <laughs> it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it just feels like, especially with the view of law enforcement today, in a weird way, that film seems a bit more relevant, um, that the world isn't perfect. It isn't like the movies. And I think um, Last Action Hero just is a slightly, it dates slightly better because there are some icky bits in True Lies, which I don't know if you want to go into now, but you were when we were talking through emails some of the sort of sexual politics of the film, because Jamie Lee Curtis's character, I, when I was re-watching the film for the first time, in, in years I think last time I actually saw True Lies I was a teenager I'm trying to remember if I'd seen it any other time since the sort of watching it on VHS in the 90s and just thinking about how is that sequence in the hotel room where uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of now posing as some I don't know she's supposed to be a prostitute who's got a bug of phone and he's posing as the person who her, who's her target and then it's sort of re- it's going to be revealed that actually Harry's you know sort of setting her up and and going to use this some sort of romantic ploy to get back with her and obviously that backfires. But I was just thinking, well, who in their right mind would think this is a great way to get back with your wife to sort of humiliate her and degrade her and do all sorts of terrible sort of things? Um, it was just a bit weird that bit. Yeah, that hasn't dated well. The word bitch appears <laughs> in this film a oh, lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does. And it's one of those things where it's not just said by the bad guys. Like one of the first things that Tom Arnold, who is the man in the van, mm. says is when Harry is dancing with the Tia Carrera character and doing the tango and they've got to get on with the mission, he says, ditch the bitch. Yeah. And I thought, because I can remember seeing this in 94 and I just loved James Cameron then because he just made all these amazing films. Mm. I was just really surprised at kind of how bland this one was and how, I don't know, perfunctory the action sequences were. Mm. But also for someone who had written so many great female characters in his movies, it just seemed like much more kind of retrograde and as if he'd had a delayed reaction to his divorce from Gail Ann Hurd, which apparently was amicable, but then mm. like yeah, three years later thinking, no, actually, I don't like her anymore. <laughs> it is abrasive. The sexual politics of this film are abrasive and it all builds up to that striptease mm. in the hotel room, which, to your point, Chris, makes no sense. Mm. <laughs> It doesn't. Very strange marriage if it does make sense. (laughs) But in saying that with some of the scandals coming out of Hollywood, maybe it does make sense to those sort of people. I don't know. (laughs) But it also comes off the interrogation scene, doesn't Mm. it? Where they've got her in that room. They've got that big booming voice disguiser. Yeah. And yeah, to your point, again, humiliating her and Mm. kind of psychologically torturing her and then send her out on this mission where she has to be a prostitute. Mm. Yeah. And I was reading an interview with Cameron for research for this pod. And um, he said, yeah, it's really interesting that all the people that said that was misogynistic just tend to be men and uh, women, lots of women have told me that they found find that a very empowering scene. It's like... Maybe when he when she hits him with the phone, I don't know. <laughs> that might be the... Maybe. And, and also, Jim, maybe when you, as the director of the film, are yeah. talking to them. Yeah. It's also like, yeah, were these women who wanted a part in your next film, Jim? And mm. like, maybe it's mm. like thinking, well, I can't say that that was a horrible scene. Yeah. It's like, roll the dice, I could be Sarah Connor. Yeah. <laughs> there were definitely smarter ways to, because basically the, I think the film's trying to show she's quite capable undercover. She's not this sort of like, um, sort of useless woman who works in an office and there's more to her than meets the eye. Um, and they could have found a smarter way to do that. I haven't seen the film that this is based on, the French film, in like La, La Totale. Oh. But yeah. having watched the trailer, I get the feeling it's much more of a farce. And actually, they could have played that in La Totale just straight for comedy without you having to like the characters. Mm. Mm. Because crucially, you're meant to like Harry Tasker. You're meant to think like, oh, he's, he's actually a decent human being. 
And if you're just playing it as a farce, which is meant to be outrageous and you don't really care if these characters are empathetic, then you could probably get away with that. But when you're kind of trying to slot that into like an American popcorn movie, as you said, Chris, Mm. it's just really jarring. And there are lots of bits in this film that are like that, where you're like, you know, the fact that um, Bill Paxton's character is like repeatedly humiliated in like really strong, like quite strong ways, like wets himself twice yeah and you're like this is just really mean-spirited i don't understand who this is for i also don't get that given that he's meant to be like this ordinary it guy that nobody's ever questioned how jacked arnie is i know that you kind of have to just go go along with it he's like wait a second he work he works just computers right does he have like a home gym no no he's like then how (laughs) he's like he manages to be you know, in the start of the film, you've got the kind of sequence where they're invading, where he's kind of infiltrating the uh, the, the snowy castle, which is clearly, it's like part James Bond because he comes out, you know, he takes off the wetsuit, he's wearing the tux, it's very Goldfinger. There's also a bit that's like quite the, like the first Mission Impossible film in terms of the team that's supporting him. But like, Arnie blends in less than Bond. I mean, obviously, you know, when, when he was first cast in The Terminator, James Cameron's thoughts on The Terminator was to cast an actor like, like Lance Henriksen. Mm somebody who could kind of be inobtrusive. Arnie's not inobtrusive, like, ever. No. <laughs> he's, he's Nietzschean man, isn't he, to quote John Milius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are scenes in this that made me think of John Milius, like the, the, the bit with um, the, the flamethrower. It does seem a bit like a John Milius wet dream. Mm, no, definitely. I mean, Arnie is more SEAL Team 6 than an undercover operative in my yes. mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know... Because yeah, you'd just see him and be like, that guy's clearly in the military. Yeah, definitely. So true. <laughs> Maybe with his accent, you're not sure which military, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was his true cover. <laughs> so one of the interesting things about this film was that it came out in 94, which was when the Cold War had ended and Hollywood was kind of looking for a new baddie. And so we have Middle Eastern terrorists in this film. Chris, you'd mentioned some things offline that were quite interesting about that and in terms of the way that other terrorist cells have been portrayed in Hollywood before. So, yeah, it wasn't always the Russians. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, like films of the sort of 60s through to the 80s, well, say, roughly a lot of them had either the Russians or it'd be like some German or an English person as the bad guy and the villain. Then when obviously the Cold War came to a conclusion... Um, it then sort of shifted to drug barons because that was that was in the news a lot. Like MI6, I remember in the early days of um, post-Cold War, there was this sort of like, what are MI6 going to do now, you know? And uh, and there was a shift to counter-narcotics. You had like the war on drugs from like the 1980s. And then obviously the other example would be looking at the Middle East as well and Middle East extremists and terrorist groups. And it is a sad fact there are many terrorist groups that do have Middle Eastern origins. And obviously Al-Qaeda and ISIS are the most recent examples. Been in a pre-9-11 world, there were many other terrorist groups. And I would say arguably one of the most famous was a group called Black September. And they were famous for the murder of the Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics in 1972. You also had Libya under Colonel Gaddafi, who was directly financing terrorism. And the Iranian government, after the 1979 revolution, had also also was financing terrorism as well. I would say that there is a justification to have terrorist characters from the Middle East, but I think there is a way filmmakers can portray them without those characters sort of becoming racist stereotypes and caricatures. And so, if I may, I'll say what I think you should do, and then I'll, I'll try and sort of tell you where I think True Lies did a good job and I think where they did a bad job. So firstly, I think you need to have 
a representational balance and have at least one positive character who has similar origins to the villain. And I think True Lies does attempt to do that with the character Faisal, played by Grant Hesloff. Um, I get the impression both by his name and the way they sort of styled him, he's supposed to be like a Middle Eastern guy. Uh, Grant Hesloff himself is actually Jewish. I don't know his uh, ethnic origins, but he's sort of standing in for a kind of quote-unquote Middle Eastern person. They probably could have done a better job and actually hired a Middle Eastern actor, but there we go. That's Hollywood. Um, but uh, I, but his character's, you know, a very positive character. He's a tech guy and he's vital, uh, plays a vital role in the mission and he even helps Harry's daughter a little bit towards the end. And then the second thing the film does... And what well, the second thing you should do when portraying terrorists from uh, you know a, a different culture, I think you need to try and create an understandable character. You don't have to necessarily justify what they're doing, but I think it helps know where they're coming from. Is it something personal? What is it that motivates them? And with Aziz, played by Art Malik, you don't really get any solid information. It, his motives just are down to rants and ravings of semi-political things, wanting this, that, and the other, but nothing solid. I don't know what motivates this man. Like, was his son killed in an American airstrike? What happened? You know, I don't really understand. So, and that's the problem with this film, because it's a popcorn film and it's supposed to be sort of a comedy, it kind of then brushes over that and kind of leaves the audience to fill in their own gaps. And I think then Art Malik becomes a caricature because he just shouts screams and shoots a lot and you know it's fun to watch but i think it does plant a very sort of um it <laughs> just doesn't plant a very good impression um of someone from the middle east so um so i find that's where the film does fail is on that second point and they do turn him into a caricature which is a bit unfortunate i mean i completely agree I and mean, i think you're actually being quite generous to the film in terms of the faisal character who is there i think to do all of that stuff that you said and yeah he is brought back at the end, and he does play a pivotal role in the rescue of Harry's daughter. But the film forgets him Oh yeah, for a huge chunk. I mean, it's at the beginning, and then he's at the end. And there's no room for him, really, but it's like, it does seem slightly tokenism there. Mm, mm. And all the things that you said about the Aziz character, yeah, and to be honest, I was kind of thinking that at the time as well, thinking this is... It just seems different to if it was like a Russian who didn't want the Cold War to be over or something. So was trying to start like another one. Mm. This guy just seems to be like really being treated as like a bug-eyed other. And mm. yeah, to your point, you're not going into any kind of psychology here. Obviously now it just looks a lot different in a post 9-11 world. And the film just hasn't, I think, aged well there. But it wasn't vintage to begin with though either. Mm. But um, I know, Rob, what do you think on that point as well? And all the stuff in the film, you know, the kind of um, explanation behind why they can get away doing this is like, oh, yeah, we can, you know, we've got like unlimited jurisdiction in terms of wiretaps, etc. Et it's like, is this meant to be like a comedy or like, is this meant to be parodying national security? You know, did you guys get in ahead of the Patriot Is Chris, as you were saying, is this very, you know, prescient in terms of how things are going to look, you know, with escalations in Middle Eastern terrorism? It's like, no, this is just here so you can explain why they've got away with bugging his wife. Yeah. Like, this is just here to justify plot you're not actually trying to make a po an interesting point with it, which you really could do. Yeah, and that's why the last action here is better. I think this film just breezes over things for the sake of breezing over things to make the plot easier and easier for the writers. I think um, with the last action hero, it just feels like there is a sort of a point there. And I think that might be maybe the difference between the two directors. I think John McTiernan, just listening to interviews, does have a bit more of a political outlook on things and is a bit more kind of liberal in his way of thinking. Because I remember listening to an interview about Predator, he, he was a bit uncomfortable with the amount of use of firearms and the way firearms are represented in the film. And one studio executive said, we need more guns. And so there's, he wrote, uh, well, he, he worked and uh, with the writers write a scene where they literally fire their guns so much. I think they cut down half the forest. 
and it's almost like an orgy of firepower. And, and you know, so there's a big difference there, I think, between the two filmmakers, maybe. That's oh, interesting, yeah, because um, Cameron, up until this film, he seemed like quite a progressive director. But with this film, though, it doesn't really seem as if he's invested in it. It's a really anonymous film. When it's not being abrasive... It feels like a favour to a friend film. It yeah, does, doesn't it? it? And it was actually Schwarzenegger who recommended the project to him. Yeah. It wasn't one they kind of had developed themselves, though. No. There's also that sort of, you know, with James Bond films, occasionally people just shrug, oh, well, it's just a James Bond movie. And I kind of feel like James Cameron may have done that shrug of, oh, it's just a, you know, pseudo James Bond movie. We're just going to have some fun. And and I think the mistake and the danger of that is sometimes you then don't consider the, should we say, the political consequences of some of the stuff on screen. And I think that, and I, and I know he doesn't want to release the film on Blu-ray because even he now retrospectively has been quite sort of shy about or a bit upset about the representation of the Aziz character in the film. Oh, interesting. I have to admit, I didn't actually see it in the end credits, but looking on IMDb, it did say that there is credit at the end that says, what is it, the characters in this film are not supposed to represent any particular religion or nation or anything like that. Yeah, you should put that at the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, like open. Zorin, you know the, the whole thing at View to a Kill, Zorin Industries is not a real company yeah. at all. <laughs> but why is that at the beginning of View to a Kill? Because it seems so weird, because it wasn't like a Zorin was, well I don't know. Well there was a lawsuit and, a, and there was a company I think that had a similar name and they were worried that the people involved would think that the filmmakers were trying to comment on whatever this character, this company was that had that name. It's a bit like with the Goldfinger thing, uh, you know, allegedly Goldfinger's named after the architect. Uh, Ian Fleming always denied that. Goldfinger uh, always sort of felt that he did it. So, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one. Fair enough. And, uh, sorry, you had some other points, and it would be great to get to those as well. Well, yeah, there's one or two interesting little tidbits that post 9-11 have come out that I can't help but notice. Um, so, obviously, there's this funny scene in the film where Art Malik's character sort of giving out... He's outlining his demands on video, and the camera's running out of battery. And I, as a former wedding videographer, can relate to that because I had a similar experience filming um, some speeches on one wedding, and luckily I had a spare battery in my pocket and wasn't the only camera, and nobody seemed to notice. But it's, there's nothing worse than when your battery runs out. But why this is interesting from a spy point of view is when the US Navy SEALs killed, found and killed bin Laden in 2011, they seized numerous hard drives. And on one of these hard drives was a video that's reminiscent of this scene where bin Laden is basically recording, he's dictating something, and he keeps making mistakes, and he's sort of, um, you know, rebuking a few people around him and so on. And, um, and also bin Laden used to purposely dye his beard so he'd look good and youthful on camera. He was actually quite conscious of his media image so um, it just sort of brought that up to me so it's a bit of, sort of life imitating art and also weirdly art malik's choice of firearm is this paratrooper version of the ak-74 which is bin laden's favorite gun so i don't know bin laden was a closeted true lies fan and thought art malik was his role model or something i don't know but <laughs> but he certainly bin laden carried the same gun as art malik does in true lies as did um, Pierce Brosnan in Goldeneye. He did use the same kind of gun too. So maybe he saw himself more as Pierce Brosnan. I don't know. <laughs> That's the reason you're on this episode, Chris. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know that Art Malik in this film has the same gun as Osama Bin Laden preferred. So <laughs> that is some deep cut there. There we go. I've earned my paycheck for the day. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the surprising things about this film was that it was by the guy who did the Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2. And I find the action in this really kind of pedestrian and anonymous. Mm. 
Apart from the bit with the Harrier jump jet. That's cool. I've always liked the Harrier jump jet since I was a kid. I'll put my hand up and say I'd like them too. (laughs) Such a lovely plane. So that ending, yeah, you've got a plane and it's destroying a skyscraper and it's like, so there's lots of imagery now that, you know, doesn't look as kind of um, throwaway as it did in 94. But the ending is good. And some of the CGI, I think, of the Harrier jump jet is good. And you can kind of see that we were moving into an even more realistic area of CGI from T2. So that scene, I thought, was pretty good in terms of the action. Mm. It comes very late in the day. Is there any particular action in the film that you like? I quite enjoyed the horse chase. Um, and there was me thinking, like, how? Because think about it as a filmmaker, how do you get like a horse to do those things and end up in a lift and all that kind of stuff? That was kind of fun. But uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, your point of the CGI, why I think it looks better is because there's a good use of model work with. Because with the Harrier jump jet, it's a big model that's held from a crane most of it. Oh. And then it's just the background's blue screened in, sometimes rear projected in. Is the heat haze from the Harrier is really the only CGI bit. Um, the rest of it is a lot of careful model work. And in fact, the missile hitting the bridge is really good model work. Uh, and this it, it was interesting. In the late 90s, I think model work had got to this point where it was almost pretty real and you couldn't tell it was models. Because remember watching those films from the 50s, those war movies, were suddenly like, we're cutting to a model of a ship blowing <laughs> up. I don't know why it always just looked like a model no matter what they did. But somewhere in the 80s and 90s, they kind of got that right. And then suddenly CG came in. And then now, like, honestly, the action in this film, in comparison to a lot of movies I see in the cinema every year, is groundbreaking in comparison. It's so much better, just from a photorealism point of view. From a stylistic point of view, I think the Harry Jumpshare scene, yes, is the best bit of the whole film. And it might be, again, because they had to incorporate using real Harriers with then fake Harriers and so on. But the horse scene's fun. The beginning's just a pastiche of James Bond, and it's, you know, it's nothing we haven't seen before. So, yeah, it's I, I agree with you largely on that. I do quite like the action sequence when he's running, yeah, in the opening when he's running through the snowy woods, and there's a part where he falls on his back and he's sliding down the hill. Oh, yeah. And you've got the snowmobile jump leaping over him and he shoots the guy off the snowmobile in midair. Yeah, that's quite cool. Bit Die Hard 2-ish. Talking about the combination of model work and CGI, obviously um, James Cameron did a similar thing in Terminator 2. Because you've also got the um, you've got the future sequences, the twenty twenty nine sequence, and the well, I think this is in the extended edition at least the destruction of Los Angeles via in a nuclear blast, which was all done in miniature. Mm. And it's also is it, it and given the fact that this is coming from the director of Terminator, the Terminator franchise at that point, and the level of nuclear paranoia that's it that's inherent in those the in this there is a nuclear blast, but it's used as a comedic note because it's a background to a kiss. Yes, like you know the big romantic kiss between uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis. It's so weird thinking about it in that context. Where it's like you've made two films that are essentially like trying to prevent nuclear war. And in this one, it's like, oh, a nuclear bomb's gone off. No biggie. Yeah. You just reminded me, actually, there's a point I forgot to mention earlier. Like in that post-Cold War period, there was this whole fear of suitcase nuclear weapons getting into the hands of terrorists. And obviously with nine, post-9-11, there was that fear of like, quote unquote, rogue states getting nuclear weapons. Um, and obviously now with the war in Ukraine and stuff, there's been that concern with uh, Russia launching nuclear weapons and stuff. So yeah, it is interesting with Cameron because he is quite conscious of nuclear weapons and their destructive power and it's sort of a throwaway thing. Um, but again, I think it adds the argument that he's a bit of a hired hand on this film. But again... To take nuclear weapons too seriously would have kind of not worked with the tone of the film. And I think the tone of the film kind of does a disservice a little bit to the story. And and we can go a bit further into that with Bond in a minute when, when you're ready. Cause <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, they're, not, they're not trying to make some of all fears here. Talking about um, rogue states, maybe think Rogue Nation, which maybe think Mission Impossible. Yes. <laughs> and um, I think there's a much more interesting version of this film 
That would have been made by someone like Brian De Palma. His film came out a couple of years after this, um, the spy thriller, Mission Impossible, uh, for the franchise starter, Mission Impossible. And this film leaves so much, there's so much psychosexual in terms of the, like him thinking he's being cuckolded and the role play. And that, that kind of goes uncommented on that is just used as the basis of what well, they try to use as the basis of comedy, which would have been so much more interesting when handled, like given some some frisson to it by a director who's not kind of shying away from those things. Because James Cameron, all to, to an extent, always shies away from sexuality in his films. <laughs> Although uh, it's interesting that um, Gail Ann Hurd, who was married to James Cameron, married De Palma. I feel like it needs to be a da da da. Sorry. <laughs> and yeah, and I think they were. I think they were married at this point. I think they were. They, they were broken up by the time that um, uh, De Palma did Mission Impossible. And it's and it's yeah. It's almost like James Cameron's gone. Well, you know, you're married to my ex now, so I'm going to make this film that you should be making. Screw you, De Palma. <laughs> and then and then De Palma then De Palma broke up with Gail Ann Hurd, and he was like, fine, I'm going to make a spy film now. And it's going to be much better. <laughs> Well, if anything, like the bridge sequence, the Harriers kind of reminds me of the third Mission Impossible film with um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's Escape. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities in some ways. Yeah. It really does, yeah. All the Mission Impossible films are better than this one, are better than True Lies. Well, this, yeah, yeah. I mean, should we segue into Bond? Because, like, I think the problem with this film is its tone gets in the way of what could have been a better movie. And I think that happens a lot with Bond movies, too. I prefer, like, the more gritty, real Bond films that are quite interesting thrillers. And Timothy Dalton's definitely my Bond, as is a bit of Sean Connery. Um, This is very much, like, what an updated Roger Moore film would feel like. Hmm. You know, and and obviously the Bond franchise is an interesting place now, not knowing which direction to go in. And there is a danger they could go into True Lies territory if they're not careful. I find when humour and stuff starts to kind of get in the way of sense and what could be much more interesting, I, I just find... I don't know, this film just feels way too convenient in places. And I think the writers are just sort of doing things to make it easier for them than they are to tell a really interesting story. To be fair, I haven't watched this film since I was a teenager. I've had no real desire. Yet, I Goldeneye, that came out the year after, I've probably watched pff, 20, 30 times. <laughs> it's the first film I saw out of the pandemic, you know, much more exciting um, <laughs> and had a slightly better balance of tone with the comedy and drama. You know, some of the later Brosnan films, arguably, are, I don't know, I, I, you know, I love Tomorrow Never Dies. They, the thing with the Brosnan, with Bond films, they kind of feel a bit predictive of things because I was re-watching Tomorrow Never Dies not long ago and it kind of, in a weird way, is commenting also on what social media is like today, the power of the individual with information. And that's where Bond films are much better. And even Moonraker, the most outrageously kind of sci-fi Bond movie, is turning into a documentary every other day now. I mean, like with the world of Elon Musk and, and, and Jeff Bezos. Honestly, give it 10 years, Moonraker will feel very real, despite some of their weird parodies. I would follow Hugo Drax on Twitter, unlike Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah. Well, he has a better turn of phrase, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He'd, he'd, be, so much, he'd be so much more withering and urbane. Yeah, so Bond films very good predictive. So you could argue a little bit that True Lies is a bit predictive of sort of the 9-11 world we're going into and whether that was by accident or through um, some sort of foresight, I don't know. But it's a funny old... It's an odd film. It's a very odd film and it doesn't... It's not as memorable as the Bond films it's trying to parody. Um, as much as there are bits I do like. I do like the chemistry between Harry and Gibb, even though Gibb is the guy who has probably some of the more problematic lines. You know? <laughs> like, he, you know, calling, say, ditch the bitch and talk about how he was getting a blowjob or something on the job one day and Harry covered for him. That's right. That kind of stuff is like, you know, yeah, that doesn't work so well now. But uh, <laughs> but there we go. And, and I think we were saying, Anna, this felt like the beginning of a fr- uh, wannabe franchise. And it was talk of True Lies 2 for years. And I've read recently that there's 
this planned TV show of True Lies, and I do wonder if it gets into the Mr. and Mrs. Smith territory, because the ending of the film definitely kind of goes there, and if they were going to do a True Lies 2, I imagine Jamie Lee Curtis would be on missions with him, uh, because it would be difficult to sort of not include her. So I'm intrigued where that will go, because there's a Mr. and Mrs. Smith TV series in development at the moment as well, so who knows? The first season of True Lies will be just him having to hide his identity because they won't burn through that in like an episode. And then like a season two will be her like maybe kind of um, thinking there's something going on and learning how to become a spy herself. And in season three, she's revealed to be a Russian sleeper. Indeed. <laughs> and then season four, is it Pfizer works for Al-Qaeda or something? <laughs> <laughs> it all just turns into the Americans, which actually was a very, very good series. <laughs> Well, the reason why you can come back, Chris, if you want to, is because you said that uh, Tomorrow Never Dies is a really, really good Bond film, which it is, and does not get nearly enough love. A lot of people are so down on that film, and I just think the story, but also the action in that is great. Yeah, it um, is. And Michelle Yeoh is so good with Brosnan, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the director is the master of the insert shot, right? So a lot of, even Goldeneye has some really shoddy inserts. And what I mean by that is like, um, yeah, it's the green it's the green screen rear projection where, like, think of that scene where Pierce Brosnan jumps off the cliff and jumps into that plane. It looks really shoddy in a lot of places. Whilst in Tomorrow Never Dies, when he has a similar sequence involving airplanes and he's having fights, all those close-up shots of Pierce Brosnan in the plane look really good and actually look like he's in a plane. Whilst a lot of other directors don't pull that off so well and that and the director Spottiswood did um, Air America a lot of people hate that film but from an aeroplane buff point of view it's a really good film actually it's really well made <laughs> and it's shot by Roger Spottis and uh, sorry shot by Roger Deakins and it, it looks really good I think the action in Tomorrow Never Dies is much better I think my only problem with Tomorrow Never Dies is the ending. It feels a bit generic. There's no real sense of tactics from Bond's point of view. It feels a bit generic, actually. It's just shooting here, doing this. gets a bit, just a bit generic. It's lacking tactics there. <laughs> um, and maybe James Cameron was pissed off and, and couldn't do a James Bond film because he was too expensive and True Lies is his answer to it. <laughs> There's a few directors out there who were too expensive, like Spielberg was too expensive. And that's what led to Indiana Jones, I believe. Uh, John Frankenheimer, I think, wants to do a Bond film and obviously led to Ronin. And he did a really good, um, uh, I think it was a 7-Up commercial that's sort of ripping off Goldeneye a little bit with a tank chase and stuff that I found on YouTube just recently. Um, so there are a few directors out there who, who would have been the sort of director who could have done a Bond film but just never managed to do one. Thank God that um, Frankenheimer didn't get a Bond film because Ronin is good stuff. <laughs> oh, I love Ronin. Yeah, I think it's such a great... It's a very underrated film. <laughs> it still holds up really well, you know. It's, uh, yeah, especially the action in it. It's very good. Rob, final thoughts on True Lies? Yeah, I think to date... I haven't rewatched really Avatar yet, but I think to date it's probably the weakest... Well, no, yeah, it's probably the least James Cameron in James Cameron's filmography. Yeah. So, Chris, if our listeners would like to find you online, where can they do so? So the first thing they can do, if you type in secrets and spies into your favourite podcast app, the podcast will come up. We do have our own website, which is just secretsandspiespodcast.com. Uh, we also have a Twitter, which is just Secrets and Spies, so at Secrets and Spies. We now have a YouTube channel, which has taken a while to get going. Please do subscribe to that because it needs the numbers. So yeah, it's just YouTube Secrets and Spies. Um, that will come up as well. Sorry, Secrets and Spies podcast. So you can find me online there. I'm also, um, my personal Twitter is Chris Carr Film, uh, and you can follow me on there. I'm happy to chat on any form of twitter that you wish to find me on as long as it still exists it might all go tits up soon who knows <laughs> thank you elon
What a genius. Yeah. <laughs> Master businessman. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Chris, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk about the film with you. Thank you very much. It's been awesome to have a chat about it. And maybe we should do a Last Action Hero special at some point. Well, it's the 30th anniversary next year, so I think you've just planted a seed. Oh, is it? <laughs> there we go. And I've been to the La Brea Tar Pits that features in the <laughs> film, so I always think of it when I'm there. So, <laughs> Well, that's... You heard it here first. Live from the La Brea Tar Pits. Yeah. <laughs> cool, guys. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, but I thought that was uh, a very good discussion of James Cameron's two 90s Arnie films. What do you think, Rob? I've enjoyed it. Sorry, yeah, I I hope... (laughs) I I was bored throughout. (laughs) (laughs) Just wished I was watching Terminator. That's right. I do. Well, this is obviously the wrap-up part. So, uh, Rob, if people wanted to find you on the internet, where could they do that? Uh, yeah, if you're looking for me online, you can follow me. For, you can find me on Twitter for the moment at Robert M Wallace. You can also find my writing, such as it is, at of all the film sites. www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Uh, Mr. Daniel and I also co-host another podcast, which is a scene-by-scene analysis, uh, loving scene-by-scene analysis, if that sounded dry, of the cult classic Highlander, which you can listen to wherever you listen to this. Uh, follow that on Twitter at McLeod Time or, you know, drop us a Highlander themed email at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. That podcast is currently on hiatus, but we'll be back sometime early uh, 2023. Yes, we'll be back. If you're interested and want to know what it's called, it's called Another Time McLeod. Oh, God, yes, 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 that's quite important. It's called Another Time McLeod. Another Time McLeod. Another Time McLeod? Another Time McLeod! One more time, McLeod. Another time, McLeod. McLeod. (laughs) Thank you very much. Yet again, McLeod. (laughs) Some more, McLeod. (laughs) (laughs) Matter, McLeod, which kind of means again, McLeod in Japanese. It's kind of worse. Anyway, cheers, Rob. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, then I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Rob Dan. And if you want to read my writing, you can find that at electric-shadows.com. And if you want to drop us a general movie-themed email, you can do that at moviebroadcast at gmail.com. And if you've liked what you've heard, then why not leave us a star rating and a review, if you want, uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's always much appreciated to have the feedback and it helps us with all the algorithms and stuff. So yes, if you want to do that, then it would be much appreciated. And thank you very much for listening, obviously. And we'll speak to you again very soon with some more James Cameron. We're going to get watery and then go into (laughs) outer space. Sold it. (laughs) What could we be talking Uh, about? What did they give you? Sodium Amador was a matter truth agent. It makes you tell the truth? Mm-hmm. Is it working? Ask me a question that I normally would like to. Are we going to die? Yep. I'd say it's working. They're going to shoot us in the head, or they're going to torture us to death. Okay. Or they're going to leave us here in the bomb. Harry! Seventeen years. (sighs) 
Have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. 